I am 40 years old, and it is difficult for me to see where we are as a nation, as a society. Some of you who've lived longer than I, then doubtless you maybe even say that with a greater sense of, um, for lack of better words, disbelief. When you look at where we are as a society, there are people inside of the believing church and outside of the believing church which look at the direction of our society and where we are now and they marvel and they say, how did we get here? How did it come to this? Or they say, I can't believe that we are here. What's next? What's coming? Now, when Christians say that, Christians are not to say that with any sense of pride, any sense that Christians think that they are better in and of themselves. Christians know that we are sinners who are saved by grace, but nonetheless, we know that God has revealed in His Word a standard of right and wrong. God has revealed in His Word that there are things that are to be done and there are things that are not to be done. And it's as though we've seen our society not only cross a line, but run from that line that they have crossed in God's Word headlong into greater and greater measures of depravity. I saw this week something that prompted that question in my mind. Just sitting and seeing something, I said, what have we come to as a society? I saw that there was a drag show in the Minnesota State Capitol Rotunda as part of the Trans Day of Visibility Rally. It had a man who was dressed like a woman dancing provocatively And I thought, not in a mean way, not in a condescending way, but just in light of what God's word says, with no vitriol, none of that, but nonetheless saying, what have we come to as a society? What have we come to as a society when parents bring their children to such events and are more zealous to catechize their children into gender confusion than even some professing believers are zealous to catechize their children into the doctrines of the Christian faith? What have we come to? What have we come to as a society when the President of the United States of America declares on March 31st, which shouldn't be a surprise when you saw the Democrat Party's platform leading up to the 2020 election. None of this should be a surprise if you just saw what they were saying and seeing what they had openly declared. But he says and declares that uh, March 31st, 2023 was to be the Transgender Day of Visibility. And he made a statement that began with transgender Americans will, or transgender Americans shape our nation's soul. The, the issues that our nation faces are not limited to that, right? There's governmental corruption. There's been immorality of all kinds. And again, as Christians, you don't say that or you don't observe that with some sense of vitriol or hatred, not at all. Christians are those who love those who would esteem them to be enemies. Christians are those who pray for such ones. Christians know that we are guilty before a holy God for our sins, but yet we've been justified by the blood of Christ. You do not look at these people and say, wow, look at what heinous sinners. I am so much holier and better than them. That's not what you do. You remember that you were redeemed, but you know that the God of the universe has revealed a standard in his word. And that God has said, I am the creator. I will tell you what's right and wrong. You do not get to define what's right. You do not get to define things like gender. I told you what it is in Genesis chapter 1. I created male and female. From the beginning, that's what I did. You don't get to redefine that. You don't get to redefine marriage. I declared what it is in Genesis chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You don't get to declare that. I've given you principles in my word concerning life. I've revealed that the life is 
in a womb is indeed a life. I put provisions in the Mosaic law to protect that life. I've given you texts like Psalm 139 to show you that I'm the one who knits together lives in the womb and that those persons in the womb are indeed persons. I am the God of the universe. So Christians don't look at these sort of things and say, we're so much better, we're holier, or look at these people with any kind of hatred or vitriol. No, we look at such ones with compassion and we understand at the same time that the God of the universe is the God who has revealed standards of right and wrong. And if you're going to say that it's hate to just simply say what the God of the universe has said, then you have a woeful definition of hate. And you also have a woeful definition of love. You look at what's going on in our nation and you could likely ask the question, what have we come to as a society? Some people might say that you look at our society and the conclusion is that we are beyond the point of no return. That the descent has begun, it will continue to pick up speed, and before the collision with the bottom comes, more disturbing sights will come, and things will get worse and worse. And I couldn't tell you that you're wrong. But at the same time, I would call your attention to the history of Judah. And I would call your attention to Hezekiah's son, the prodigal Old Testament king by the name of Manasseh. He was a man that was engulfed, engulfed, immersed in all kinds of evil, in all kinds of iniquity. You have likely never met somebody in your life who was more entrenched in evil, more engulfed in evil than the man you're about to hear about further in this text. Manasseh, engulfed in all kinds of iniquity. When I tell you, and we go through the text and you see, he committed such sin that it would make your ears to tingle. If you don't know what that means in scriptural language, I'll explain that a little bit more when we get there. I'm going to reference 2 Kings and I'll explain what that means. But to put it another way, you see what he did, it'll make your stomach queasy. It'll make you very uneasy to see the sins that this man immersed himself in. Much like our time, there's a lot of similarities there, though he, in, he did it on a level that was even more crass and unhinged than what we know today. And the city, the people, the nation that he had charge over, he plunged them into idolatry. That was who Manasseh was. But the lesson that I want you to see today is not primarily a national one. It's a personal one. It's an individual one. You are meant to see what God did with this man by the name of Manasseh. In the case of Judah, as a matter of fact, they did go beyond the point of no return during the reign of Manasseh. You look in the scriptures and they were on a collision course with judgment via Babylon. And they went on that collision course via Manasseh. 2 Kings chapter 23 verse 26. They were on, they were on the road. They were beyond the point of no return. But God stretched out his hand. And his grace reached down to an Assyrian prison or dungeon, wherever this wicked man was. And he saved the Old Testament chief of sinners, Manasseh. His story can help you get a better understanding of the greatness of God's grace. The grace that is extended to every one of you who are outside of Jesus Christ. I want you to see the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God that's extended to you. For those of you who are in Jesus Christ, I want you to see the magnitude and the greatness of Jesus' grace towards you so that you might freshly appreciate it and so that you might communicate it to others in your proclamation of the gospel. 
As we look at the verses today, we're essentially going to be giving our attention to three things. Number one, who Manasseh was. We get a little bit of an introduction to who he was in verses one and two. Then we're going to look at how great he sinned. We'll see that essentially in verses three through ten. And then we're going to see how great an example of grace he became. So we begin in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, or Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So here's a little bit of Manasseh's biography in summary. He began to reign at 12 years old. Many, but not necessarily everybody, suggest that he began as a kind of co-regent with his father, Hezekiah. So at 12 years old, he becomes king. More about that in a moment and the problems and pitfalls that would come with such power and authority at 12 years of age. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. The longest reign that we see of an Old Testament king reigning 55 years. And that would make you shudder if you knew what he did during those 55 years. Not necessarily all of them, but a good portion, the majority of them, was spent engulfing the nation in idolatry. But not only that, you'll see when I reference 2 Kings a little bit later, he shed innocent blood from one side of Jerusalem to another. And the innocent blood that's spoken of there, most commentators agree, speaks not of children sacrificed, but we're going to see them referenced, because they had been referenced earlier in the chapter. But the blood of righteous men and women who would not conform to his, if you will, state-sponsored idolatry. To those prophets who were speaking out in the name of the Lord. And so imagine being a person who's following the one true God, trying to adhere to the covenants of God, trying to listen to the word of God as it's proclaimed by the Levites. All of a sudden, this man comes to power and you become an enemy of the state. And all of a sudden, he's reigning for 55 years. Now, again, not all of those years were spent doing the things that we're going to see itemized in the verses ahead of us. But for a good portion of those, he engulfed the nation in idolatry and he persecuted the people of God. How might the people of God felt? During those years, you can imagine the people of God crying out, how long, O Lord, how long is this going to go on? All day long, we are accounted as sheep to the slaughter, to borrow language from the psalmist in Psalm 44. Is this going to end? Is there any relief? Do you not care? Do you not see what's happening? Are you not moving? We know that you're there. We know that you care. But Father, it's hard for us to endure. Who knows what the people of God prayed in those days? But imagine the difficulty and the perseverance and the patience that was required living under the wicked reign of Manasseh, a tyrant and a persecutor of the people of God. This has not only been the lot of many people in the Old Testament, but it's been the lot of New Testament saints in the New Covenant times as well. You think of those Christians who lived under the persecution of Nero or Diocletian, those Christians who have been persecuted by Boko Haram, those Christians who have been persecuted under communist totalitarian regimes, those Christians who have been persecuted by Sunni jihadists and other jihadists. The people of God have a great history of being persecuted in this world. And there were Old Testament ones, such as these who lived under the reign of Manasseh. Paul sought to have the people of God prepared for such things. That's why when he wrote to the Church of Rome, for instance, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In other words, he was acknowledging these things are going to happen. And these things may do a lot of things, but I tell you what they do not do. They do not separate you from the love in Christ. Then he supported that statement with an Old Testament reference. Again, referencing the psalmist. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. As sheep for the slaughter. I just say that to remind you of a people who lived under Manasseh's reign who needed resolve, who needed patience. And because they were persecuted did not mean that they were not loved by God. Because God did not remove Manasseh at year five, but he allowed him to reign all the years that he did, did not mean that God did not have a plan, did not mean that God did not love his people. But they were persecuted and they had to endure. A little bit more of the biography of this man, Manasseh. Let us note two things, and I'll itemize the second out a little bit. Um, Let us not overlook the privilege that Manasseh had and the great temptations that he faced. When you see the sermons that have been written throughout the years on Manasseh, there's good attention given to these things. First, the privilege that Manasseh had. He was the son of a righteous king, namely the son of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah brought great reforms in the land. And you think of the legacy that somebody like Manasseh had. We're not saying that Hezekiah was perfect. We're not saying that he was a perfect parent. But we are saying what the scripture says, that he was a righteous king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And when you look at the history, he brought about a great reform. And Manasseh has this opportunity to continue the reform, to walk in the path that by the grace of God had been carved out for him. He sat under the godly heritage that he had. But what did he do? He rejected it. He repudiated it. He didn't want anything to do with it. Spurgeon had told a story that a man by the name of Mr. Whitefield had told. He said that Mr. Whitefield had told a story of a wicked son who would not live in his father's habitation because he said that every room in that habitation stunk with his father's religion. Sadly, there are many Christians who are in situations like Hezekiah was. To have a child that rejects the faith of their father or their mother. But let the story of Manasseh fan the flames of hopefulness. Because where Manasseh's story starts is not where Manasseh's story ends. And by the grace of God, for you who have children that you are longing to see walk with Jesus, may by the grace of God such be your story. That you could say the story of where my child began will not be where it ends. At least where his unbelief or her unbelief or rebellion began. It won't be where it ends. Um, Calling your attention to some temptations he faced. I'll just do this briefly. But think about the temptations, rather obvious ones. He comes to power at 12 years old. right? So even if he's reigning as a co-regent with his dad at that point in time, nonetheless, he's put in a position where he has authority and he has power that he is not ready for. So that is going to bring with it doubtless problems. So that's issue number one. And he also lost his dad at a young age. He lost his dad at a young age, and it's difficult to imagine the hardship and the great damage that that would cause him, even as it has caused many, to lose a father at a young age. He needed discipline and was likely surrounded by those who were more like sycophants, those who just wanted to kind of use Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, to bring about the reformation they wanted. You'll see, and this is just a little bit of a side I think is helpful. Hezekiah brought a reformation about, right? 
But when you see how quickly the nation goes back to idolatry, that tells you something. That tells you that a lot of the people in the nation conformed to Hezekiah's reform outwardly, but they weren't changed inwardly. And doubtless, I can't say this with definitude, but I do say it with a sense of, in my own conviction, doubtless, there were those in the regime and there were definitely those in the nation who were like, where is our opportunity to get back to the idolatry of Ahaz? Ahaz brought idolatry that we love. He brought the religion that we love. Hezekiah took it away. How can we get back? Let us lead, groom this one Manasseh. And let us help him to be the king that we know he could be. Not like his father, but like his grandfather. So I can't say that with definitude, but I do think it is an overwhelming probability. There's also a possibility, some suggest, that this man Manasseh, when he was born, being the only child of Hezekiah, may have been perhaps spoiled. Maybe Hezekiah made the same mistake that we see David make so often in the history of David that he didn't discipline his children. You see that with Adonijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. Doubtless you see that in the account of Absalom that some of you are studying even as it's going out in the uh, text messages and the messages on Tuesdays and so on. David, godly man, a man after God's own heart, but he had an issue with not disciplining his children the way he ought to have. Quick reminder for parents in this room, right? It is loving to discipline your children. Not in some sort of harsh way, not in some sort of mean way, but to provide standards and accountability and to provide discipline. You could be raising up a monster if you don't. Thinking, I've given this child everything. If you give that child everything without discipline, without correction, you have provided the ingredients to grow a monster. So don't think, I've given them everything if you haven't given them discipline and accountability. Just read through the Proverbs and you'll be reminded over and over again that to withhold discipline is to withhold true love from your child. It's not loving. So that's a little bit of the background here. But now let's get into the evil that Manasseh practiced and perpetuated. Now one of the things I want you to see here, interestingly, is that some people have said, and I I think rightly so, that when you look at the position of the um, Democratic Party, when you look at the position that many have taken who prefer a left political ideology, that it's as though they went through the scriptures and looked at what God said on many issues and said, okay, is that what God says? Okay, note, we're going to do the opposite. Is this what God says here? Note that. We're going to do the opposite. That doesn't mean that everybody on the political right is, you know, you know, a lover of Christ and bearing much fruit in righteousness. No, many are complicit. Many are duplicitous. So I'm not trying to say that everybody who identifies themselves as a Republican or a conservative is truly a, somebody who holds up righteous standards. Not saying that at all. But nonetheless, on the left, you do have that kind of dynamic. You just look at the platform. You're like, wow, that contradicts Scripture, that contradicts Scripture, that contradicts Scripture. The reason why I say that is because when you look at what Manasseh does, it's as though he went through the book of the law and said, what did God say to do about this? I raise my fist against whatever he says. As we walk through verses 3 through 9, include verse 10 in that, it's as though his program was developed to be the antithesis, the antithesis of what God's word revealed. We'll walk through that together. In verse 3, we see, For he rebuilt the high places which his father had broken down. That's the beginning of verse 3. So in other words, and we'll walk through these rather briefly. In other words, he sought to undo the reformation of his father. High places were unauthorized places 
of worship, oftentimes in the scriptures connected with overt idolatry. He didn't tear them down like his father. Rather, he built them up. Now, imagine if he said, I want to be my own man. I'm not going to walk in the pattern of my father. I'm going to develop my own legacy, my own history. I am going to be my own man. So instead, he walked in the pattern of Ahab, a wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Why do I reference that? Because some people think, if I reject a certain pattern, that I'm going to be a kind of trailblazer, creating my own identity and my own, my own style, so to speak, when in reality, you're just following another person's pattern. See, all of us in this life, to some degree, you will follow somebody's pattern. And in the scripture, you are called to follow, most ultimately, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in Philippians 2. You're called to follow godly examples, imperfect people who follow the perfect example. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus are all examples in Philippians 2. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember, remember those who spoke the word of God to you. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, imitate their faith, considering the outcome of their manner of life. So we are going to have our lives patterned after someone. It should be the Lord Jesus Christ, and we should be able to take from those godly examples in our lives. This man spurned his godly father's example, and he ended up walking in the example of somebody like Ahab and Ahaz. He also, we're told, second half of verse 3, he erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Now, long story short, the Baals and the Asherim were part and parcel of the Canaanite fertility worship. What does that mean? That means that people engaged in foul immorality under the guise of religiosity, hoping that their land would be fertile, hoping that their immoral actions would produce some fertility in their land. That's the kind of immorality that this man set up as kind of, if you will, state-sponsored worship. He had it within the cloak of religiosity. We're told that he also worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So it wasn't enough just to have one form of idolatry. He had to dabble in other forms of idolatry. Many suggest that this kind of idolatry practiced by the Assyrians, practiced by the Babylonians, was a kind of attempt of him to adopt the idolatry of other nations. New things, new ways of worship, new forms of idolatry. But yet at the same time, they weren't new. God had warned his people about such things in Deuteronomy 4.19. He told his people, don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars, all the hosts of heaven. And doubtless, he probably sought information from the stars. More about astrology in a moment. And he offered worship to these inanimate things as opposed to the one who created them. Now, one um, pastor uh, that I was reading, he recalled um, sitting in a Chinese food restaurant and seeing the Chinese zodiac that was on the placemat right before him. And it called to mind what that was like for me. Many times I remember being younger and going to Chinese food restaurants and seeing that Chinese zodiac and then seeing the um, different animals that were on it, right? If you were born in this year, on this year, you were connected with this dog or this dragon and you were to have these sort of characteristics, and in my, you know, non-believing state, I was intrigued by that. Let me look into this. Let me see. Do I fit the category of a dog? Do I fit the category of whatever animal this is? But it kind of struck me weird, even at a young age, when I said, everybody born in 1982? Like, really? 
Like, so, so like everybody who's my, in my age, in my class or whatever, we all have the same characteristics. And you just kind of even know, like, that's silly. Yet so many people follow it like it's truth. Manasseh was one such man, worshiping, worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, created things. He was bound by it, you might say. But the transgressions continued. Now, what I want you to see here, we're building up. And I think the reason why the writer of Chronicles here, the chronicler, if we were to say, carried along by the Holy Spirit, why, one of the reasons why he's doing this is so you could see the magnitude of Manasseh's sins so that you might see the greater magnitude of God's grace. Look what he puts next. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. It's as though the chronicler is saying, it's not just that he put altars outside of the things of God and had some sort of respect for the religion of his father. He went a step further. He said, I'm actually going to put altars, and look at verse 5, for all of the host of heaven in the two courts of the Lord. It wasn't enough to say idolatry out there on the high places is good, but we'll have some manner of respect for the things of Yahweh here. No, no, no. He raised his fist high against Yahweh. I think so that you might see the patience of Yahweh. Yahweh is so patient. Spurgeon said, oh, the infinite patience of the Most High that he bore with such daring insult as this. Verse 6, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. In other words, he practiced child sacrifice. He made his sons to pass through the fire. Now you say, why would he even do that? Why would he do that? I think we get a little insight into the temptations towards abortion when we look at why somebody like him would do what he did. Why would he do what he did? Why would you even have your child pass through the fire? It's an act of selfishness. You think by offering up your child through the fire, you're securing some sort of favor from this false God for yourself, some sort of favor from this false God for the land in which you live. You are hoping that in some way you will be blessed by giving your false God some offering. It's an act of selfishness. And not all the time. But I would think the majority of the time, again, not all times, sometimes parents may make those decisions wrongly, thinking that they're doing some sort of service to the child in the womb. But in many cases, it's an act of selfishness. Do you know how my life will be changed if this child is born? Do you know what I won't be able to do? Do you know what people will think of me? Do you know the career I won't be able to have? Do you know the respect that I'll lose? Do you know the hatred that I'll receive from others who will scorn me? Do you know the disapproval that I'll have from my parents? So, as an act of selfishness, so as to alleviate all of those possibilities and not have to deal with that, sometimes people will commit the sin of murder and abort a baby in a womb. And it's an act of selfishness, even as Manasseh offered up his children to pass through the fire as some sort of act of false worship for the service of or the preservation of self. Now again, just, just so we know that th- this thing wasn't new, these kind of things, when the Lord brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, he told them, the nations that you're dispossessing, 
Like God gave the children of Israel the land of Canaan, and he told them very specifically in Deuteronomy 9, don't think when you come into this land, it's because you're more righteous than these other nations. Or, or you're getting it because you're a righteous people. You're getting this land because of the wickedness of this people. God had been so patient, but then he dispossessed the Canaanites from that land. And part of what they did was offer up their children in the fire to Molech. Israel was to know this, and Israel was to reject this behavior. Just another quick note. I want you to know that though modern-day progressivism thinks that we are advancing to some sort of place that is a place of progress, a place of newness, new frontiers that society hasn't known, it's actually just old idolatry repackaged, modernized. That's what it is. You look at what God had told Israel in Leviticus chapter 20. I mean, Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. He says, moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. In other words, don't commit adultery. But then he says, and you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So they had adultery problems in the land of Canaan that he didn't want them involved in. They had child sacrifice problems that he didn't want them involved in. He told them, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So homosexuality was an issue then. It's not a new thing. It was told to the people of Israel, look, this is what they're doing. This is what I don't want you to do. And then he tells them in verse 23, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. A little bit later on in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, he said, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord. Why am I calling your attention to these things? God has spoken about these things. They aren't new issues. It's oftentimes the pattern of civilizations and societies that before they reach the point of no return, they start engaging in this sort of downward spiral that's described here. Then they reach the point of no return, and then bye-bye goes that civilization. This isn't new. God had spoken about it even in the first five books of the Bible, warning his people. Back to Manasseh, furthermore, he engaged in the occult, he countenanced the demonic, and he embraced the forbidden. He practiced witchcraft, he used divination, he practiced sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and spiritists. So he had supposed communications with, you know, Uncle Bill, not that there was an Uncle Bill in Israelite culture, but supposed communications with the deceased, countenancing the demonic, engaged in sorcery. Interestingly, in the New Testament, that word for sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia. Uh, oftentimes, sorcery would be connected in the ancient world with some sort of potion, some sort of thing to put somebody in a state where they'd be better apt to interact with the demonic. He engaged in sorcery. He had supposed communication with the dead, but in reality, he countenanced demons. He sought to interpret the future via omens. And I just want to remind you, I've told you this before in recent messages, but I just want to say it since it's here in the text. Please, Christian, have nothing to do with the occult. You're not to have anything to do with witchcraft or Ouija boards or tarot cards mediums, spiritists, sorcery. This is dangerous stuff. You even see drugs, drugs in the connection there. You're not to have anything to do with these things. You are to be miles away from them. Do not play with fire. Do not play with fire. Do not sin against the Lord God. 
Well, the list nears its end. In the beginning of verse 7, we're told, Then he put a carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God. You say, well, what was that carved image? In 2 Kings 21, verse 7, you find out. It was the idol Asherah, a Canaanite goddess. Again, why, are you showing, why is the Chronicle showing us this? I think to show us the heinousness. Right in the house of God, he puts an idol. Many commentators suggest that he did this in the Holy of Holies. In the second half of verse 7 and verse 8, we're told a little bit of description of the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses." Second half of verse 7 and verse 8, I want you to see something specifically. Namely, the great opportunity that they rejected and refused, declined and despised. He had an opportunity. If he walked in the path of his father Hezekiah, God was basically saying under the old covenant, part of the stipulations that God gave to the nation of Israel was, if you obey my law, not sinlessly, but if you obey my law, you sin and then you do the prescribed thing, you offer the sin offerings, you'll stay in the land. You'll have security. I'll defend you from your enemies. They had this great opportunity and he rejected it. He spurned it. Please know every time that you come here, if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, every Lord's Day that you come, you are being reminded of the great offer that's being extended to you. That if you, by the grace of God, receive the gospel and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins, you will have security forever. You will have a relationship with the living God that can never be broken. You will have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. You will spend forever in God's presence, enjoying the kingdom that He's prepared for His people. You have this opportunity by the grace of God. Please do not reject it. Do not despise it. Do not spurn it. Receive it by the grace of God. Manasseh had a temporal opportunity. You walk in this path, your land will enjoy security. Your land will enjoy prosperity. Your land will enjoy these things. Under the old covenant for the Jewish people, that was part of the promise. You have a promise of eternal security. You have a promise of the forgiveness of sins. If by the grace of God you receive Jesus Christ believing that he died for your sins and rose from the grave. Manasseh rejected such an amazing opportunity. He despised the place where Yahweh's name was and despised the opportunities and offers presented to him. But you risk rejecting an offer far greater. Far greater. Please don't. Hopefully by the end of this message, if you haven't gotten to that place, you will. So it wasn't only that he did evil, but we come to verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. You want to see how bad it got? It's as though the writer here is saying, think about those Canaanite nations that God judged. Read Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14. See what they did. They weren't just like, you know, happy little families that enjoyed apple pie and Little League baseball, and they never did anything wrong to anybody. No, they put their children through the fire. They practiced witchcraft and sorcery. This nation at this time under Manasseh was even worse than they were. They practiced more evil. But I want you to see this, because I think this is important. The people that were under Manasseh, look at the beginning of verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations, so on. Were they 
just unwilling victims in this? No, he did lead them in iniquity. It shows us the importance of godly leadership and the significance of ungodly leadership and the damage that can be done through them. But they were not led unwillingly. We're told in 2 Kings 21 verse 9 that they paid no attention. They paid no attention to the things that God had spoken to them through the prophets. I want to give you a little bit of an idea here of what the prophets spoke to the people. Beginning in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 10, I'm just going to read through verse 15. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. In other words, the picture there is that something so terrible was going to go into their ears, that their ears and their whole body was going to shake. It was going to be that terrible when they heard it. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become as plunder and spoil to their enemies because they have done evil in my sight. And have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. In verse 16, moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Many believe, and there's multiple reasons for this, that Isaiah was one who was persecuted and killed under the reign of Manasseh, the prophet Isaiah. When you hear that such a one was sawn in two in Hebrews chapter 11, many believe, and it's referenced in the Talmud, Um, As such, early Christian writers, quite a few of them, note Isaiah to have been such a one who was sawn in half under Manasseh. That kind of thing appears to be what's referenced in 2 Kings 21.16, the shedding of the blood of those who had committed no capital offenses, those who did no crimes in the nation. They were sinners, but they didn't commit crimes against the state, as it were, under God's theocracy, but they were nonetheless murdered by Manasseh. The writer Josephus, the early uh, Jewish historian, said that Manasseh, quote, cruelly put to death all the righteous among the Hebrews and not even spare the prophets. Um, But even of these, he slew some daily. So you have Josephus saying he put to death all the righteous among the Hebrews. He didn't even spare the prophets, but he slew some daily. And again, this shows you the importance of leadership. This is the kind of thing that was there in the land, but was suppressed with Hezekiah. So if you want to see the significance of leadership, you say, wow, the people had this kind of capacity under Hezekiah, but it was suppressed under Hezekiah. You put somebody like Manasseh in who opens the floodgates of iniquity and look where society goes. I think that's an important takeaway. Verse 10, um, back to 2 Chronicles 33. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. It's as though they heard what I just read to you and said, all right, enough, enough, enough. And on to the next thing. Enough with this ridiculous stuff that the God of the Hebrews is speaking and so on. But then we come to verse 11. Things would begin to change. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks 
bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Now, some commentators have suggested that this was the way that the Assyrians treated some of their more, quote, distinguished prisoners, end quote. So this one was a king. So what do they do? They humble him. They put these chains through his nose, and they kind of drag him as though he were an animal. So they did that to him. He goes, and he's in Assyrian captivity, in a prison or a dungeon or something like that. And there, his life and his eternity would be forever changed. Verses 12 and 13. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, or Yahweh his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, or Yahweh, was God. Now you know what we've just read. You know the iniquity that he practiced. He built altars to false gods. He multiplied false and idolatrous worship. He made his own sons to pass through the fire. He did all of these iniquities. He he shed much innocent blood. You would think if you look at somebody like this, you'd say, he even heard the word of the Lord and he refused it. You would say, I write off such a one perhaps. But all of that would just be used by God to show the greatness of God's grace. Because according to God's will, God would use affliction to humble this man. And there in an Assyrian prison or in an Assyrian dungeon, he would see the emptiness of idolatry. He would be without the polluting influences of, say, evil friends and counselors. He could not be distracted by pleasure or leisure. He had reached rock bottom. And there, like the prodigal son, he came to his senses. He humbled himself before God and he prayed. And I want you to see the great grace of God. He prayed and God heard. Do you see the grace in that? God didn't make him jump through a whole bunch of hoops. His heart was really humbled. His heart was really broken in that moment. And God didn't say, you know what? This is what we're going to do. You're going to jump through certain hoops. Before I even hear your prayer, this is what I want you to do. You're going to do penance. You're going to do an act of contrition. You're going to do all of these things. His was a spirit wrought, it appears, humbling, where he cried out to God and God heard him and received his prayer. And I say to you, what grace, what grace that God would hear him. That prayer uh, that he prayed was recorded. We see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 18, but it has not made its way down to us. There was and is an apocryphal work known as the prayer of Manasseh. It's not canonical. And even though there'd be those who would receive other apocryphal books into a supposed Deuterocanon, this is not one of them. Um, But it's 15 verses long, the apocryphal, non-inspired prayer of Manasseh. But it does include things that you would imagine that he probably said. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, for thou art God, even the God of them that repent. And in me thou will show all thy goodness, for thou will save me, that I'm unworthy according to thy great mercy. Now, I don't know what he prayed. We don't know. It hasn't come down to us. But you're definitely thinking that he prayed something like that. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve such grace. But I cry out to you, the God who delights in pardoning. And he prayed, and according to God's abundant grace, he heard Manasseh's prayer. And God even gave him the ability to demonstrate publicly fruits of repentance. He brought him back to Jerusalem. 
I'm not going to go through the rest of the verses, but I will call your attention. If you looked at verse 14, you see that the fruit of repentance is shown. He took steps to actually be a leader who worked for the security and the defense of his people. You see that in verse 14. In verse 15, you see that he began to try to undo the idolatry that he promoted. He regarded the idols as nothing. He threw them outside of the city. It's as though when he was in the dungeon, he knew Baal's not going to save me. Asherim's not going to save me. The sun, the moon, and the stars aren't going to save me. They are as nothing. There's only one who could save me. There's only one who could help me. He cries out to Yahweh. He goes back to Jerusalem and he gets rid of all these false gods. He throws them away. Verse 15. You go on in verse 16, you see that he started to follow God's prescription. His faith evidenced itself in obedience. Yahweh's prescribed these things under the old covenant. I'm going to do them. And then he started to lead in the right direction. Rather than leading people into iniquity, he sought to lead them in the path of righteousness. Verse 17, sadly, we are reminded that Manasseh could not undo all that he did. People still sacrificed on the high places, although they did it to the Lord their God. He couldn't undo all that he did. His son Ammon would be a wicked man who would seek to practice Manasseh's wickedness. He could not undo all that he did. There were still consequences. But he was repentant. He was indeed repentant. I want to apply this now. I want you to see what God did with Manasseh. A man who looked to be beyond the point of no return was nonetheless not beyond God's reach. Was not beyond God's reach. Perhaps all of those who might have felt at some point in time, maybe even feel now, as though they are on the, beyond the point of restoration. How could God forgive me? Could he forgive Manasseh? He did. He restored him. He heard him. Can he not forgive you? Please, if you will not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because you think your sin is so great. It may be because of that, but it's not going to be because your sin is so great at the end of the day. It's going to be an unwillingness, a kind of obstinance to receive the great gift of mercy he's offering to you. Because his grace is greater than all of your sin. You come to him regardless of what you've done, regardless of what kind of sewage that you've wallowed in. And if your sin sheet is even somewhat comparable to Manasseh's, even if your sin sheets manage somehow to exceed Manasseh's, the grace of God is still greater than all of your sin. That's why you have these examples in Scripture. That's why you have an example like the the man of the Gadarenes who was a demoniac. He saved He he was a crazy man. He was demon-possessed. He had to be basically isolated from society, yet God saved him. You see, God saved people in Scripture, sinful women, those who were bound by seven demons and so on, and God saved them. Saul of Tarsus, who was a religious persecutor of the people of God, God saved him. You are to be reminded that you are not outside of God's reach. If you are here, within the sound of my voice, receive the gospel, see the grace of God. Manasseh is meant to be a pattern of the greatness of God's grace. Spurgeon told the story of an old woman who lived near a bridge and was afraid to go over bridges. He said that every day she would look at the the bridge that was right near her house, had a specific name, and she would watch things go over the bridge. But she didn't think that she could get over the bridge. She thought if she went over the bridge, perhaps it might fall. And I thought he made a great point, likening it to the one who says, I cannot be forgiven for what I've done. Pointing to Manasseh, he says, look at this huge train that went over the bridge laden with crimes. The bridge of God's grace was strong enough to support Manasseh crossing over it from death into life. Whatever your sins are, the bridge of God's grace and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is enough to carry you from death to life. 
the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. It's sufficient enough to wash away all of your sin. Please dare not exclude yourself from God's grace. And if you are a Christian, rejoice in who your God is. He's the God that even forgives and changes sinners like Manasseh. Remember that when you look at the society in which we live. Remember that. How did we get to such a place? I understand that question. But you know that God can reach such ones. Regardless of whatever places they go to. His arm is long enough to save. What a great God. Whose son is the sufficient offering for sins. To you, as I began during the announcements to say, to you is extended the water of life. Drink freely. Extended to such ones like Manasseh and Saul of Tarsus. And God can change your life today and change your history. And you can begin to follow him and walk in the light even as he is in the light. Manasseh can only be forgiven, even as Saul of Tarsus can only be forgiven, in light of what the Son of God Jesus Christ did. Somebody had to pay for Manasseh's sins. Somebody had to pay for Saul's sins. Somebody has to pay for the sins of you and me. Otherwise, you and me would end up in eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus Christ is the one who bore the wrath of God, the prophesied and promised Son of God, who died on the cross in fulfillment of the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures, so that all who believe in Him might be justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace that's demonstrated in the passage that is before us. Thank you for the way in which you could reach down to the depths and how you so often use the depths of despair and despondency to be a means by which you will humble such ones who have been lifted up in pride. Oh, Father, if there be those who find themselves in a season of brokenness, humbled by circumstances of one kind or another, May by the grace of God they be like the prodigal in Luke 15 or like Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33. And may they by your grace come to their senses and see the great lavish banquet of forgiveness and eternal life that awaits all who receive your free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, for those who have received such grace, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to treasure it. May we praise the greatness of the glory of your grace. Thank you for your patience towards us, Lord. I know for those of us, Lord, who have come to Christ, we need not marvel at the iniquity, Lord, that we see outside in the world around us or the marvel marvel at the iniquity of somebody like Manasseh, but we can look at our own lives and we can marvel at the iniquity that you forgive us of. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins past, present, and future through the Lord Jesus Christ. May such grace spur on a holy pursuit of love and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.